First Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse eight, Paul writing says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children well and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. As Paul has been giving instructions about worship in the church, prayer in the church, leadership in the church, you've probably begun to realize that the church body requires service and servants. The servant and the ruling elder have character requirements, spiritual requirements, family requirements. But for the person who desires to serve the saints and seek the lost, the Lord promises a great reward. It was Charles Dickens who wrote, No one is useless in the world who lightens the burdens of another. And that's true. You might think that you are in a position where not only are you not useful, but you're useless. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because the moment that you decide to share sorrow, divide grief, and bear one another's burdens, you begin to fulfill the law of Christ. It was William Barclay who, probably borrowing from John Wesley, who said, quote, in the time we have, it is surely our duty to do all the good we can to all the people we can in all the ways that we can, unquote. The Bible invites us to serve. Jesus said, he that is greatest among you shall be your servant in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11. Peter wrote, if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If anyone serves, they should do it under the strength of Jesus, under the strength of God, knowing that it is God who is going to eventually receive all the glory. We are invited to serve. And so even though you may never occupy the office of the ruling elder, or you may never occupy the office of deacon, all are invited to serve. And so, again, here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, Paul lists at first the personal qualifications. He says, likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. 
you may be tempted to overlook that very first word in that very first sentence, likewise. But it's important. Not only does it connect the dots of what previously occurred, but it's going to tell us something. It plays an important role in the job description of the person who occupies the office of deacon. Like the ruling elder, the bishop or the episcopos, there are minimum standards for service, important standards. I use the illustration again. There are minimum standards you would think in order to secure the office of the President of the United States. You would think that there are minimum standards because you have minimum standards about who are going to watch your children. Who are you going to let take care of your children? Isn't there some minimum standard that you're going to require? And so there are standards. The deacon assists the the ruling pastor or the ruling elder. So the deacon assists the pastor and the congregation in exercising the various functions of the church. And you may not be familiar with that word unless you're a Baptist. Deacon. But again, it's the Greek word diakonos. It means servant. In the ancient world, it didn't necessarily mean a high office of prestige. It just meant to serve. It meant to minister. It would be if you went to Red Robin and the person, you're getting ready to eat a hamburger and the person says, I'm Ralph, I'm your server. And you go, can I take a picture with you? Hey, look, I'm just the server. No, no, you're an important person. I expect that you're going to bring me a clean, safe meal, right? Now, you don't go out of your way. It's a server. But again, the person, but see here, and here becomes part of the point for, for the likewise. The diakonos in the primitive church was a, a word that was used to describe the helper of the elders, but their personal qualifications weren't dramatically different. And that should cause you to all of a sudden go, well, why is that? How is that the case? The word is used in an unofficial sense in the Bible concerning anyone who serves, like in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21, but it can also be used in the more classic sense of a person who, again, occupies an office. Now, we're introduced to the idea in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Some of you are familiar with the passage. Others of you may not be. We touched on it. When the early church was growing, there was a division that began to take place in the church. It says in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now, in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continuously to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And the saying pleased the multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, from whom they set before the apostles. And when they prayed, they laid hands on them. When we're introduced to these men and their service, we are immediately struck with something. First of all, the apostles called the people to appoint the gifted men or to choose from among them so that they could appoint them to ministerial and administrative duties. In part, their job was to relieve the ruling elders who would devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word of God in verse 4. This doesn't mean that the deacon doesn't pray or preach. And it certainly doesn't mean that the pastor doesn't work. It can't mean that. But it must mean that they each had a separate focus and would concentrate the most on the resources that have been entrusted to them and the gifts and the callings that were given to them. By the way, sometimes the preachers themselves were called diakonoi. That means the group of people who serve. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers? It's the same word, diakonoi. By whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. In 2 Corinthians 3.6 it says, Who also has made us able ministers, diakonos in the plural, same word, of the New Testament. Not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills and the spirit gives life. And so we see again the word being used interchangeably among preachers teachers, servers. And so in the early church, the deacon would serve in part in the role of the preacher, in part in the role of the minister, in part in the role of service. Stephen, it says in Acts 6, 8, a deacon full of faith and power did great wonders and miracles among the people. And so again, we're talking about an entrusting anointing that was used in the particular case of Stephen who is raised up, if you will, in the ranks of the early church and he becomes the first martyr in the church. The first person who's killed for his testimony. In Acts chapter 8 verse 5 it says, Then Philip, a deacon, went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And so the deacon isn't just simply a, a person who cleans the carpet or cleans the church or, or buys and sells stuff. There's real ministry that takes place. And so it would also appear that the deacon was chosen in part by the people because it was the recognition of the congregation itself who saw in them the characteristics described. And it would also appear that the deacon is closely tied to the elders or the bishops. It says, quote, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops, episkopos, 
and the, the deacons, diakonoi, they're linked together in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. You'll remember when Paul establishes the, the churches, then he appoints leaders in the church. It would also appear that deacons were equipped and selected. Wherefore, brethren, look out among yourself seven men, honest report, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom that we may appoint over this business. So the servant leader must be reverent. It says, likewise, deacons must be reverent. What in the world does that mean? Well, in the old King James, it says grave. But it, they both translate a Greek word, seminus. And you may not know that word, but it's a word that means serious. It, but it doesn't mean serious like, you mean in order to be a leader in the church, you can't smile and you can't laugh and you can't tell jokes. That's actually not what it's meaning. But it must mean that the person takes the ministry seriously, takes the Bible seriously, the gospel seriously, the service itself seriously. And so it can also mean honorable. It can also mean worthy. It can also mean a person who is highly respected in the congregation in which they find themselves. So ultimately, the word seems to mean to be held in high respect. The next thing it says, not double-tongued. Again, in the Greek language, the word that's used for double tongue is dialogos. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the word logos or logos, it means word. And di means two. And so it means double speech. It came to mean forked tongue. That man speaks with forked tongue. It means tail bearer. Let me be blunt. It carries with it the idea of a person who reports to one person and then says something entirely different to another person. The word that we use to describe that kind of behavior is backbiting. If you've ever used the term, hey, that person is backbiting or saying one thing to one person and saying another thing to another person. The way I think I would put it is this is a person who reports one thing to one person, another thing to another person in order to court the favor of both people. So they're willing to leave out just enough information to both parties in order to secure favor from both parties. And so the bottom line becomes whoever this person is and whatever the person is supposed to do, the servant leader is supposed to have a reputation for honesty and straight talk. They say what they mean and they mean what they say. Again, we might think of it as the person must not say one thing to another's person's face and then another thing behind their back. That makes sense to you. So part of the reason the deacon must not be double-tongued 
is the reality of having insight and information into the lives of the people in the church. You have to again go back in time and space and ask the question, what exactly is the deacon doing? And the deacon is interacting with people in the congregation, people in the church. But remember when Paul is writing this to Timothy in Ephesus, they don't have an Albertson supermarket where they meet. They, we have every reason to believe that they met in an auditorium or a school that was by, by the name of Tyrannus from the book of Acts. And so it, it, it doesn't seem impossible to, to picture a large gathering place, but most of the ministry that was taking place in the church was when a person would go home to home and house to house. They would sit with people and they would pray with people and they would encourage people and they would divide the sorrow and there would be the great difficulty. And you can imagine that the diakonos, the servant, the person who is appointed and equipped to provide support and encouragement is also going to hear things about what's going on in your marriage, what's going on at your work, what's going on in your life. Some of those things are going to be sensitive. Some of those things are going to be very confidential. And so you can imagine that because the deacon has the reality of being a part of people's lives, they have to exercise integrity. And so the person had to be honest. As honest as the day is long. And so like the ruling elder, the deacon also must not be given to much wine. Or greedy for worldly gain. That's why again he repeats. Not given to much wine. Not greedy for money. All of the things that we said about the ruling elder. Or the pastor also applies to the deacon. Now again what in the world does this mean? Is it just simply a person who can't drink. Or should drink very little. And, and again the idea isn't just simply the absence of of wine or the, the unhealthy preoccupation with money. Remember what the leader must do. The leader must be clothed with humility. The leader has to not be clouded in judgment. And that's what wine does. That's what addictive behavior does. And so the whole point is, why must the leader not be given to much wine? Because again... They're also expected to exercise good judgment as you have to address hard issues, difficult challenges. The leader must not only not have a clouded judgment, they also must not have a divided heart. They don't have to constantly be choosing between money and spiritual things. It doesn't mean that the deacon can't have a job or even have a business, or, or even have a large business. It must mean that the person is so focused on what God wants that they're able to exercise these functions. So there are qualifications, if you will, character qualifications. And those character qualifications then translate to spiritual qualifications. Look what it says in verse 9. Holding the mystery of the faith 
with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. So Paul lists three important spiritual qualifications. The three important qualifications can be broken down very simply. There's a doctrinal test. There's a practical test. There's a community test. What do we mean by that? We begin with the doctrinal test. What Paul refers to as holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. What is that? What is the mystery of the faith? Does it have anything to do with the mystery of godliness that Paul is going to talk about just a few verses later in verse 16 when he says, and without controversy, that means we shouldn't have to argue about it. This isn't a matter of debate. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in the world, received up in glory. That very simple statement means God was manifested in the flesh. What, what does that mean? It means God, the real God, took on a second nature, a human nature, and became seen by everyone, justified in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on the, in the world, received up into glory. It becomes a, a, a picture of the gospel in a nutshell. So I think that there is a sense in which the mystery of godliness and the mystery of faith are related. In what way? Paul uses the word faith, I think, in this context as a reference to sound doctrine and sound teaching, which he's made reference to. And he will make reference again in chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So Paul has already outlined the importance of sound doctrine. And he's going to repeat it again in chapter 5, verse 8. He's going to repeat it again in chapter 6, verse 10. So again, in faith, the servants hold the truth in order to have effective teaching. And so what does all of this mean? The deacon, the diakonos, the server, or the teacher has to know what they're teaching. The deacon or the teacher never invents truth or adds to the truth or provides some new truth. The deacon holds to the unchanging truth of the gospel. And so I, as the pastor or leaders in the church, do we have the right to say, we believe everything in the Bible? Of course we do. And wait, there's more. We have an extra biblical revelation where, guess what? You have to give us all of your property and we get to marry your wives and we get to live any way we want. Do we have the right to add to the scripture? No. Do we add to the gospel? Are you saved by grace through faith plus something that I say? 
We don't get to add to the unchanging truth of the gospel. And so whatever else this means, it must mean that the body of revealed truth has to be embraced by the person who's the leader in the church. For the person who's tempted to believe that it means a body of concealed or hidden truth, it defeats the whole purpose of the qualifications. Church leadership doesn't mean that you belong to a secret club or a secret society. It isn't like, oh, guess what? In our church, we have secret information and a secret society and a secret handshake. No, no, no. The truth of the gospel should be held by the pastor and by its leaders and by the people in the church. Now pause for a moment as we consider that simple phrase, holding the mystery of the faith. The reason why I want to bring it to your attention, remember in chapter 2, verse 4, we read, speaking of of Paul, he says, for this is good and acceptable. He's, He's talking about prayer. Remember, it's the context of worship. And he says, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The idea being God wants people to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel that is the truth. Paul wrote concerning prayer, the power of prayer to accomplish God's plans and purposes. You can't grasp or lay hold of the knowledge of the truth unless you're saved. Unless you believe the truth and receive the truth. I know it sounds ridiculous to say this. Doesn't it make sense to you that the pastor of your church should be a real Christian? Doesn't it make sense to you that the leaders in the church, those people who serve, should also believe the truth of the gospel? Let me be blunt. Can you imagine a person comes to our church and they want to teach in the Sunday school or they want to teach in the children's ministry, and they, but they're not really believers. They're just here to check it out. They wonder whether or not the Bible is true. They wonder whether or not Jesus is the Lord. They wonder whether or not he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the dead for your justification. They're not sure about all of that stuff, but but they've always been good with kids. Does it make sense to you to allow someone to teach our children who doesn't even believe what the Bible says about Jesus? It should make no sense at all. And so it should also make sense to you that the servant leader should embrace essential Christian doctrine. That's what this means, holding the mystery of faith. When Paul uses the term, he means the deepest components that constitute the Christian faith. Throughout his writings, he will say, I didn't purpose to know anything among you except for Jesus and him crucified. He says, I 
first brought to you what was given to me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin and rise for your justification. The centrality of the message of, of the New Testament and the gospel is that God sent his son Jesus to be the savior of the world. And so again, what are some of those essential doctrines? Well, none could be more essential than the incarnation, the substitutionary death of Jesus for sin, his glorious resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And so the deacon can't compromise on essential Christianity. So imagine you're at a church and you're evaluating leaders and the person says, you know, I love this church and I love being at this church and I love serving in this church, but I don't really believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I, I think that's nonsense. Help me understand why you believe that. Pastor, be real. Virgins don't conceive. The Bible says that he was born of a virgin. I know, but you've got to admit that there are some things in the Bible that are not only hard to understand, but even harder to believe. What do you suppose is going to happen? It may sound crazy to you, but I want people serving in the church who actually believe what the Bible says is true. Does that sound so outrageous to you? The uniqueness of Jesus, of being both God and man, the sacrifice of Jesus as the substitute for sin. Jesus comes into the world to save sinners, Paul says, whom I am chief. All Christian teaching and doctrine are built on the solid foundation of the revelation that's given in the Gospels and then described in the epistles. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. That means sanctify him as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. He doesn't just simply say this concerning the leaders, but every single person who identifies himself or herself as a Christian. And so again, doesn't it make sense to you that the servant leader should be able to define and defend the gospel? Can this person present the gospel and then urge others to accept the gospel because they've accepted it in their own life? Can you imagine being a leader in the church and a person says, hey, I want to be saved. And they go, and you go, then we need to go talk to the pastor. No, they need to talk to you. You need to be able to share with them what God has done in your life. Can you speak and present the gospel? Can you talk about the problem of sin and God's solution to the problem of sin? Can you easily defend Christ, his deity, his humanity, his ministry, his suffering, his message, his priesthood, his return? Are you able to do that? Again, I'm back at Red Robin. Imagine the server goes, I'm here to serve you. And, and you say to the person, 
I want filet mignon. And the server goes, you know, I'm new here at Red Robin. I don't even know if that's on the menu. Let me go get the manager. If you're a server at a restaurant, should you have some understanding of the menu? If you're a servant in the church, should you have some understanding of what it means to be a church, to have a church, to participate in a church? Can you speak with ease about the grace of God in your life, the source of salvation, redemption, the meaning of salvation, faith, the life of salvation, love, the soul of salvation, holiness, the blessing of salvation, prayer in the spirit, the language of salvation, the hope and outlook of salvation. Again, once again, the deacon doesn't simply know the truth and believe the truth, but the deacon now lives the truth in real life. Again, like the ruling elder, doesn't it make sense to you that the person has a character qualification followed by a spiritual qualification, which includes really believing what the Bible says? And what is the outcome? A clear conscience. Belief-informing behavior. And so again, imagine you're at a church where the person's life doesn't match their belief. And so we should be able to ask the question, has Jesus changed your life? Has the gospel changed your life? Has it produced something inside of your, of your heart where you're living a life that's marked by joy and peace? by humility and rest, by meekness and supply, whatever else it means, it must mean a person who has some sort of spiritual depth. And so we're talking about a depth of character and a depth of spiritual reality. And so when the deacons were chosen in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, they were known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. How could you possibly be known to be full of the Holy Spirit and, and wisdom unless someone witnessed it and participated in it in your life? And that's why Paul says, test it. Why tested and what is the nature of the test? Is he talking about, okay, you've got to go to Calvary Chapel and here, here's a form and if you get 80 out of the 100 questions right, you've passed the test. Do you think he's talking about that kind of a test? I don't think so. So what kind of a test is he talking about? I'm going to suggest to you again, it's the witness of the people concerning the character of the person under consideration and Christ's presence in their life. Remember, these servers have gone from house to house and person to person and place to place and participated in their life. What happens? What happens when you take a risk 
and you begin to care about people and share with people and allow them into your life and then all of a sudden you begin to understand that they love you and care for you and pray for you and when there's sorrow, they provide comfort. I think what's important that he's talking about is it means proven. This doesn't simply mean, again, saying, well, I think that this person's a good person. It's a person whose life has been observed. And let's be blunt here just for a moment. Observed in the crucible of pain. Observed in suffering. Observed in difficulty. Observed not when things are easy, but things are hard. Not when things are going good, but when you are in trouble. A man who has proven both character quality and family living and spiritual gifting. And you might be thinking, these seem to be very, very high standards for a person who simply tasked with the business of serving. but then you would be missing the whole point. You would be missing the vision that God has and that hopefully the pastor has concerning the value and the integrity and the stewardship that's been entrusted concerning the lives of the people. To put someone in leadership without evaluating their doctrine, without considering their life, could result in the biggest disaster that the church could ever experience. I'm going to tell you a ministry secret. You must promise never to forget it. The people who can help you the most in ministry are the people who can also hurt you the most. The people who can help you the most can hurt you the most. Think about that in just the most practical way possible. When you entrust people with your family, with your friends, with your children and your grandchildren, when your wife has been diagnosed with cancer and you go to the doctor and, and, and you say to the doctor, this is my wife, be careful. The doctor might say, I am going to serve this person and minister to this person like it was my own wife and my own child. Can you imagine saying to the doctor, treat this person like you would your own flesh and blood. Be careful. Do your very, very best. Again, like the ruling elder, the, this person can't be a novice. It, has to, it can't be someone new to the faith. Proven in the sense of having a testimony. Proven in the sense of being able to articulate that testimony. A Christian who's rooted <coughs> and grounded in God's word. Spiritually mature. With a proven testimony of Jesus. Well known and respected. And so. What does all of this mean? Well what if. I've had a test and I haven't exactly passed the test. Hey, guess what? 
Each and every one of us are going to be given opportunities to serve and we're going to be tested. And sometimes we're going to do really, really good and sometimes we're not going to do so good. So again, what does all of this mean? Does it mean, what if, what if you're a person in the church and, and you don't have a perfect track record and you've even failed a few tests? So what does this mean? Does it mean tested and never, ever failed? Tested and never, ever made a mistake? Tested? It means tested and found faithful. And again, even if you've made a mistake, guess what? People make mistakes. And people can sin. And what we want to be able to do is repent of that sin and turn from the sin and turn to the Savior. So again, this can't mean a person who has never ever made a mistake and has never ever done anything wrong. The ruling elder and the deacon have to be allowed to exercise gifts and ministry before given the office. And so do you know what that means? We have to allow people to do stuff. Well, what if they make a mistake? God knows we want to make sure that the mistake is not irreparable. Can you imagine teaching your child to ride a bike and you say to him, you could crash. You could break an arm or a leg or chip a tooth. I don't think it's a good idea for you ever, ever, ever to ride your bike. How do you think that's going to work out? Is that the way you want to live your life? And with the thought that the risk is too great and the consequence is too harmful. But here's my point. My point is, in order to be able to occupy the office, you have to exercise the gifts in a way that people can see what you're doing so that you can pass the test. And then look what else it says, blameless. It's the same quality that's required in the ruling elder. So remember, blameless doesn't mean sinless. It means the servant is above reproach. Again, in what way? That means that there's nothing in that person's life that Satan can seize and use as a reason to bring accusation against that person and against God's church and against God's gospel. The outside world, those outside of the congregation and outside of the church have no reason to refute this person's moral character and spiritual condition. Tested, blameless. And so finally, there's family qualifications. Look what it says in verses 11 and 12. Likewise, same word. So again, as you're connecting the dots, you see in chapter 3, it says a bishop has to be blameless. The, the, the deacon, um, likewise, deacons must be reverent. Again, we see it again in, in this verse. Likewise, their wives must be reverent. Now, I want you to pause for just a moment because this is in a way, a, a difficult passage. Let me see if I can make some sense of it. It says, in the same manner, wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own households or houses well. 
The person who occupies the office of the server must be faithful to his wife, just like the ruling elder. So when it says the husband of one wife, I'm going to suggest to you that it doesn't just mean an adulterer or a bigamist or a person who's proven unfaithful. Obviously, you would, see, you would tend to think, again, whatever this means, it must mean that this person's real character, spiritual gifts, and family relationships are consistent with what the Bible says. So the person who accepts the office of the deacon is faithful to his wife, responsible to his children, and the wife has to be a woman of good character. Now it is true that the original language allows for the possibility, likewise, the same standards apply to the wives, who also function in the role of the servant or the minister in the church. So what does all of this mean? Does this mean that the New Testament allows for women to occupy the role of a deaconess. I'm going to suggest to you that I think that the possibility is there, but this isn't the text that proves it. The context seems better suited to mean the wives of the deacons have character requirements. The text itself says, likewise, wives. If you have a New King James Version, you'll notice that the there is italicized It's not in the original text. It says, likewise, wives. But the word translated wives is the Greek word gune. You may not know that word, but we get the word gynecologist from it. It's a Greek word that means generically women. It could literally mean likewise women. Reverend. There seems to be three ways to both translate and then identify this passage. I'm going to give you all three ways. Number one, it may mean the wives of the deacons. Again, the Greek language there, the possessive article, is absent. So one possibility is that this is a reference to wives... And in the context, that seems to make sense since family considerations and family qualifications were used to build the case for the ruling elder. And now the family dynamic and the family relationship is also being used in order to support the idea of responsible leadership in the church. If you keep reading verse 12, it continues the discussion of the requirements for the deacons. Number two, it may mean women in general. Again, the context seems to argue against that interpretation, but it does allow for that interpretation. Number three, these women are female deacons. Or deaconesses, like Phoebe, who's mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Again, this interpretation is based on the use of the word likewise, as it's also used in verse 8, which allows for the meaning in the same way. Or we might say, these qualifications also apply to women. Whatever the meaning, whatever the application... And however it's to be applied, it has to mean 
that women leaders also are responsible. That makes sense. Serious. That makes sense. Dignified. That makes sense. Worthy of respect. That makes sense. And then the text says, not slanderers. This is a really harsh word in the original language. It's a graphic term. It's may, diabolos. Some of you who are familiar with other languages, you hear that word diabolos. And you go, ooh, that sounds like diablo. And you would be right. Me, diabolos. It means slanderer. It's one of the names that's given to Satan. It means talebearer. And again, it means more than just a talebearer, it means a gossip. It means a person who has a practice of going around talking about others with a view towards meddling, with a view towards stirring up drama, with a view towards making mischief, with a, with a view towards disturbance. As you can imagine, there's three kinds of people. There are peacemakers, and then there are peace fakers, and there are troublemakers. This is the troublemaker. This is the person, just like some people are addicted to wine or they're addicted to drugs or they're addicted to all kinds of addictive behaviors, this is the person who's addicted to drama. And make no mistake about it, it's as powerful an addiction as drugs or alcohol. This is the person who's going to create problems. And so the presence of gossip is a big red flag in leadership. Someone said, well, actually, Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13, a gossip betrays a confidence, but a trustworthy man keeps a secret. Let me be blunt. Those who talk about others to us will talk about us to others. If a person comes to you and says, did you know that so-and-so did such-and-such? You can rest assured that they're absolutely and positively willing to do the same to you. So there are three basic rules when speaking about others. We, we should call these Geno's rules. Ready? Number one, is it true? Number two, is it kind? Number three, is it necessary? If it's not true, if it's not kind, if it's not necessary, then don't say it. And if the person insists, you need to be able to say to them, can I quote you on that? Can I hold you accountable for the words that you're saying? My granny was fond of saying, Honey, do you know why dogs have so many friends? Why, Grandma? Because they wag their tails and not their tongues. <laughs> Today's my mom's birthday, by the way. My mom died about two years ago in October. 
And uh, again, you know those things that your that your mother or your grandmother say that just sort of follow you into the future. And then Paul uses the word temperate. Like again, in the ruling elder in chapter 3, verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate. What does that word mean? Remember what we've already learned. It means marked by appropriate limits, boundaries. In other words, this is a person who's not given to extremes. They don't go way, way to the left. They don't go way, way to the right. They're not extreme. They're not excessive. It also seems to mean the absence of extravagance. And so again, when it's talking in relationship to the wife and whatever that might mean, whether it is a reference to the deacon's wife or whether it is a reference to the woman in leadership, this is the minimum requirement. And then faithful in all things, which reminds us of what Paul has said elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, moreover, it is required in a steward that one be found faithful. It's interesting, the verse right before that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God or of, of Christ. In other words, we are the caretakers of this important information so that people could have a right relationship with God and know that their sins can be forgiven. And so the person might argue about backbiting or gossiping or extravagance. They might come with, up with any kind of an excuse that you can think of. A lot of people, again, fall short. But it's interesting. Let's for purposes of discussion just grant that some people slip. People say, I didn't mean to. Or I didn't want to. Or I didn't really want to talk behind that person's back. I didn't really want to gossip. Um, again, part of the point of leadership is that you're able to exercise propriety discernment. The Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so a failure to see harm or a lack of discernment or an inability to govern their speech or their behavior is an indication of immaturity. And then in verse 13, you see the righteous results. Look what it says. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. We revisit the question. Why such high qualifications for such a low menial job? All I am doing is serving people in the church. But again, I'm going to suggest to you that God sees things so very, very differently. You're entrusted with the care and the service 
of people who matter tremendously to Jesus. Those who serve and who serve faithfully and serve honorably earn a good standing with fellow believers, but they're also recognized and appreciated for their service. So the deacon or the server or the minister receives good standing in what sense? What's interesting to me about that that word in verse 13, they obtain for themselves a good standing. In the original language, you know what that is? A diploma. It's the word diploma. You know, remember, a diploma is supposed to signify Do you remember when you got your first diploma in elementary school or junior high school or high school? They hand you the diploma because you've graduated. You've demonstrated a certain set of information and you are being recognized for what you've done. But the diploma isn't given by the church. And it isn't even given by each other. It's given by Jesus. It's he's the one. D.L. Moody was fond of saying, we may easily be too big for God to use, but we're never too small. Hey, all I want to do is serve. All I want to do is serve. It was William Wordsworth in a verse that was written for small children. He said, quote, small service is true service while it lasts. Of humblest friends, bright creature, scorn not one. The daisy by the shadow that it casts protects the lingering dewdrop of the sun. Can you imagine a petal protecting a drop, blocking out the sun just to preserve a little bit of moisture? I love that. Service. The word boldness can also mean assurance, by the way. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness. That means confidence, assurance, because what he or she does is valued and appreciated by God, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience to Jesus produces assurance and confidence and the servant of Jesus can provide help in time of need and strength in time of weakness and cheer in time of doubt and comfort when your life is falling apart. Guidance when the issues are so overwhelming that you have absolutely no idea how to even take one more step forward. Peace in trouble, joy in sorrow, power in service. Humble, faithful service to Jesus. Might generate a little recognition, a little adulation, a certificate, a trophy. Humble service and faithful service to Jesus may generate next to no 
earthly reward. But Paul says that there's an eternal reward. Humble, faithful service to Jesus will produce an eternal reward. You know what's interesting about all of the things that we've talked about? The character requirements. The doctrinal requirements. The family requirements. All false teachers will fail the standard. Well, is it, isn't it possible that, that a false teacher could live a moral life and even an exemplary life? I'm going to suggest to you that most false teachers don't. Is it possible that they might be able to rise to the level of some sort of moral decency? I'm going to suggest to you that that is possible, but because they failed the doctrinal test, whatever their self-proclaimed service is, it's wood, hay, stubble. It will burn away. It will receive judgment and punishment by the Lord himself. You know, at the church in Ephesus, they had a glut of teachers. And they had a drought of truth. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of people who offer a lot of information. In the Life Application Commentary, it says this, quote, There was too much meaningless talk and too little purposeful living. Doubles the apostle, doubtless the apostle would have endorsed James's plea, Don't let many of you be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly, he quotes James chapter 3, verse 1. Paul knew that a future supply of faithful teachers would only be available with a present renewal of faithful believers, unquote, and that becomes in part part of the point. Faithful believers are going to produce faithful servers who will be faithful to Jesus and faithful to each other. So in summary, quickly, the deacon, grave, serious, but not in the grave. By that I mean the deacon doesn't necessarily have to be just one year away from being dead. The servant can have a sense of humor and a love for life. It's okay to smile and even tell jokes if you're in leadership. Not double-tongued, not two-faced, not backbiting, not saying one thing to a person's face and another thing behind their back. Not addicted to drugs or alcohol that might cloud their reason or judgment. Not greedy or preoccupied primarily with the accumulation of wealth and the preservation of wealth. Able to understand, articulate, defend the gospel, know the gospel, explain the gospel, defend the gospel, and all of the essential teachings of the gospel. Maintain a clear conscience, a pure conscience. Be tested and proven inside the church and outside the church. Blameless, but not sinless. Not having anything to do that would harm the testimony of Jesus that would hurt the ministry of the church in which he or she serves. A godly wife 
with well-behaved children. Having said all of this, when we invite you to serve, when Jesus invites you to serve, you might be saying, hey, I'm struggling, 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 struggling. Well, guess what? The head grows by taking in, but the heart grows by giving out. And at some point, at some point, at some point, Christians can't simply be content to have a little more information. But rather they have to take the little information that they have and be willing to share it with others in serving others. And we're going to stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as you raise us up, as you impart to us health, as we exercise maturity and dignity and propriety, that, Lord, we would see the value, that, that we don't want to just simply be better people so that we would be qualified to serve, but that we would be men and women who love Jesus and who want to grow in the character of Christ, knowing that it is the character of Christ that also reveals the fruit of the Spirit so that we can do what's honoring and pleasing to you, so that we can serve each other with confidence and assurance, knowing that you'll be blessed and glorified not only in what we say, but in what we do. And so, Lord, again, I pray that you would raise up an army of men and women ready to give rather than take, ready to serve rather than be served, and ready, Lord, ready. Instead of accumulating stuff, being able to and willing to sacrifice stuff so the saints would grow and that the church would be healthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.